Hello, I'm Cole Peterson, based out of Portland, Oregon. I'm author of Backdoor Revolution and host of the ADU Hour, a podcast where we probe deep into ADUs and other small alternative infill housing. Expansive and deep thinking about small infill housing is our jam. You can sign up for information and announcements from my email newsletter at buildinganadu.com. And I'm Kelsey King, a real estate agent and ADU specialist based in Bellingham, Washington. We host the ADU Hour live on Zoom. Cole interviews experts in the ADU space, and then we take some questions from our live audience. Willie Dean founded Ground Up Design Works in 2013. He focuses on residential projects with creative and sustainable designs. Willie specializes in ADU design with extensive experience in new construction, as well as garage and basement conversion. With 38 and counting, built ADUs, Willie has experience with a diverse array of people's housing journeys and is excited to share what he knows about helping them build their backyard dreams. Cole, what were your takeaways from revisiting the interview with Willie? Willie is a talented ADU designer who really cut his teeth from the beginning of his private practice with ADUs. He's also got a growing practice that has spanned into California. So I was curious to hear about his take on working in California and Oregon to better understand what differences that would make in his practice. What were some of your takeaways? Getting a peek into a designer's brain as they work with small spaces is super fun. I have a lot of interest in how smaller dwellings can help our communities and cities reduce our ecological impact. And Willie's passion for and knowledge of sustainable design is super inspiring. Just a quick warning and apology for the audio. During this interview, it wasn't the best, but the content is great. Let's hear our interview with Willie. All right, so this is Willie Dean, and Willie Dean is a uh, residential designer working primarily doing ADU design and has worked quite a bit in uh, both Oregon and now in California. I thought he would be a, an appropriate guest to have because of his experience in both those states. On top of that, Willie is also an excellent ADU designer. We're going to be talking about ADU design as a general matter, and hopefully everybody can get something out of our conversation. So Willie, why don't I give you a second to introduce yourself in a little bit more uh, detail? Sure. So my name is Willie Dean. I am an architectural designer in Portland, Oregon. My company is called Ground Up Design Works, and I specialize in residential design of all types, but I'd say specifically probably 80% of my work is accessory dwelling units here in the Portland area. And over the last few years, I had an opportunity to work with a company in South Bay, San Jose area. And with them, we, we executed probably 12 ADUs in the South Bay, Silicon Valley area. It's a good amount of work within a short period of time, but I definitely have some observations about differences, good and bad, and in general. I got my uh, master's degree in architecture from the University of Oregon. That's what got me out to Oregon. I'm originally from Wisconsin. I got my undergrad from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. So for those who don't know, I actually went to a, a design school myself and everybody wore black rim glasses. So is it a requirement that you wear black rim glasses if you're an architect? You know, some people with other colored glasses, but it's a standard. These are actually technically navy blue. Navy blue, okay, I'm colorblind. Yeah. So. <laughs> All right, so we're going to dive right into your work in Oregon, California. So which uh, markets specifically have you worked in? Well, I should say, in Oregon, you probably just worked in Portland, correct? For ADUs, yes. I've only yeah. done ADUs in Portland. I've done uh, a couple of remodels in Vancouver. I've done a single-family house out in rural Wasco County. 
Yeah. But as far as ADUs are concerned, actually only the east side. I think I just point that out to say that I know a lot of people who work in the ADU space in Oregon. And when I say Oregon, it's really just Portland because there's not a lot of activity even five miles away from where we are in Portland because the regulations haven't been the same. In any event, Side note. So, California, which jurisdictions have you worked in? So, San Jose, Campbell, Mountain View, Los Gatos. The interesting thing about that environment is that every few miles you're in a new town. Right. And, and that's pretty different than Portland where we have sort of the urban growth boundary and the rules are pretty similar for miles in any direction. Whereas down there, I mean, it's a way bigger space. There's way, way more people and there's all of these little enclaves that all have their own specific zoning rules. So that's one of the huge differences working down there. You Every town you go to, you have to learn a whole new set of rules. And some of them base their rules on the same stuff and some of them are just different. And then the way that the permitting offices work is always different too. So tell us about some of the substantial differences between the ADU design work that you've done in these two markets, Portland and the San Jose zone in terms of uh, a number of different things. So process-wise, things like Title 24, net zero, solar requirements, designing for dry versus wet conditions, culture-wise in terms of players, actors, and cost. Yeah. I know that there's a new set of rules in California in 2020, and I haven't done anything this year within the context of the new rules. So everything that I'm saying is is a tiny bit dated in that respect. But my experiences was that the rules in that part of California where I was working were a little bit more restrictive. In Portland, you're allowed to do 800 square feet or 75% of the existing house, whichever is smaller. And that's just across the board. Down there, the lots are a lot bigger and it's based on an FAR, but a normal lot down there is 7,500 square feet and you can only do a 600 square foot ADU. So for my experience, we could only do single story, one floor, one bedroom, one bath, which if that's the context or the constraints of the the project that you're working in, it, it simplifies things drastically. So it was, I suppose, easier because you didn't have as many tricks that you could pull out of your hat but also limiting in that I felt like it's the most expensive housing market in the country and we're limiting it to these one bedroom apartments that we're building where there really is huge, huge, huge opportunities for infill and we could be doing bigger projects. From the zoning perspective, it seemed it was smaller and therefore simpler projects. Then into like Title 24, that's just an interesting different way of doing things. In Oregon, we have the, the energy code and it's just a part of the design review and there is no third party verification, which I mean, on some level is maybe a better thing that there is third party verification and it makes it, it maybe adds a little bit more rigor to the process, but it also makes it more expensive. You usually have to work with a specific title 24 consultant and then you become sort of the middleman. You're asking somebody else to verify your designs. So it's it's a little different. And then it's also interesting because while we just have the code here, our code is actually stricter in a lot of ways as well. So because it doesn't get cold down there, you can still just do a two by four wall with our 21 insulation. You do slab on grade construction, you don't have to insulate under the slab. So these are things that were just like standard designs 
in my kit when I went and we, we ended up changing a lot of those things because when I started two by six walls and under slab insulation and all these things that even with the, the added rigor of T24 weren't necessary because of the climate. What about dry versus wet? Does that change anything? I still designed it as if it was going to get rained on. Yeah. Because it does still rain and when it happens, it's the same. I guess one big difference is up here, we, we have to mitigate for stormwater and uh, down there you don't. For the most part, if you're in a low laying area where you're not going to have good drainage, then they might specifically single you out to do something about it. But we weren't putting in dry wells in every single project. It rains everywhere. But here, because it rains so much, we have these on-site water mitigation systems that we, you don't have to do that down there. Right. Just as a side note, Portland's always been a little bit on the bleeding edge of uh, stormwater management, and we have a really good climate for that. This really light rain that falls a lot of the year, so we can absorb stormwater on site. And I've always liked that, but it can't, you can't do that there as much because of the rainfall patterns. So right. cost, talk about cost-wise, some of the differences between the Portland market and the San Jose area. Yeah, uh, it's a lot more expensive. It's the most expensive housing market in the country, and so that just makes everything more expensive because the, the cost for the people that work down there. It's one of the reasons that I was hired. I know what I'm doing with ADUs, and so the people that I was working with met me and thought that I was a good fit, but also I didn't live there. It was, it was hard because people that are living there are already busy working in the housing markets, and they were having a hard time finding people because of how busy it is. And then in terms of cost for building, it's just a lot more expensive. And, you know, being a designer, I wasn't, I wasn't bidding and building all of the projects, so I don't have the exact numbers of, of where and why, but just if a climate's more expensive, then it's going to be more expensive to build down there. Just to dive into that, because I, I had to figure this theory out for myself, and I'm sure other like economists have written about this, but if you were to go to a Home Depot, a stick of lumber down there would be roughly the same cost as a stick of lumber in Oregon, as in or Alaska, as in Florida. But it's that, I'm guessing, it's private, primarily the labor costs that escalate significantly I would imagine a direct correlation between land values and labor costs and therefore construction costs. How does that mesh with what you would hypothesize about that? I, I think that's right. I think that it's in the building, not in the material. It's possible that there's a slight increase in material and there's a lot of people from California on the chat here, maybe somebody else that yeah. has bought material in both places regularly could answer these questions better than me because I'm primarily drawing the designs, but I think that that idea that the labor is for sure the most expensive part because those people need to be able to afford to live at least somewhere near there. And even if you're not living in San Jose, but you're living a half hour away, it's still expensive. I would assume that it's just a more expensive climate to operate in. Yeah. Let's get into a more nuanced element of that question I posed. You, you were one part of a ADU development process, so you might not be able to speak to all of this, but can you talk about some of the cultural differences? And I'll give some context for this. My experience in the Portland market, your experience in the Portland market is we've had the benefit of having this kind of tight-knit community of people who kind of all know each other and to some extent, or a lot of people do. And we've kind of been working in the small cottage industry sector because it's kind of been a slow growing, well, not slow growing, but it's been a fairly modest number of 80s being developed in a concentrated geography. But California, different situation rapid fire, huge explosion of 
they do development. So I'm just curious if you could speak to any observations you have about the cultural differences of ADU development, professionally speaking, in Portland versus the Bay Area. Yeah, it's just coming on very fast and very strong in California. I mean, Portland has been a sort of slow burn process where it's been growing, but not exponentially, or maybe not as exponentially. And therefore, a lot of us know each other. We visit each other's projects when there's tours, but yet it's still a pretty niche industry. You're not producing huge numbers of projects every year. Where down there, there's the possibility of like really exponential growth as these huge swaths of land with ranch houses on 7,500 square foot lots that have flat backyards. You'd have to do a GIS sort of query to figure it out, but it's a huge percentage of the way that the, the land is developed down there is, is it's all primed for it. And then when you take that with being the most high cost housing market, like the, the market forces are strong. I mean, Portland's a popular place to live, but the, the market forces are way stronger down there. And, and therefore that does change people's motivations for, for doing it. That said, when I was down there, it was still a lot of people that were looking to downsize and stay in their house. The same flexible space ideas, it's the most expensive housing market. And so if you want your kids to be able to stay there, you might have to build them a house because they can't rent anything. They can't buy anything. So you're going to pull your money and build an ADU or it's so expensive for your parents to have an apartment that they're going to move into the ADU in the backyard and you're going to keep things closer. So the, a lot of the forces were very similar. I'm sure there's people building them as rentals, but we still experienced a huge amount of the people were building them for ways to be flexible and accommodate family members or friends. The other part of it is there's not huge incentives the way there have been in Portland. So I think that who sees it as an opportunity is a little bit of a different group of people because in Portland, the way that it's been incentivized for a long time and continues to be, helps open the door to a wider range of people. It's so expensive to own a house down there. And then because there aren't incentives to get you to build an ADU, you're trending to a little bit more affluent group of people that would be building them in that area versus how they can get done here. Another difference that I've touched on last week with other guests and I want to talk about with you for a minute here is a prefab modular ADUs and also, you know, standardized designs. It's an interesting topic and I've historically been kind of skeptical of standardized designs and prefab uh, development in general because these companies have not generally gotten a lot of market adoption here in Portland, but I think that is uh, ephemeral in the sense that things are changing with ADUs. They're becoming much more popular now in a lot more jurisdictions. And so prefab does potentially play a, a different role or a significant role. Standardized designs might play a different role. And I was hoping you could talk to me about your thoughts about standardized designs in the Portland market versus the California market and prefab modular to some extent. Sure, so the short answer is, I, I think I alluded to this earlier, we're a niche market still with ADUs, in particular in Portland. I think it's gonna pick up quicker. And then also Portland, especially inner Portland, the, the lot sizes and topography and layout is very diverse. And so it makes it hard to do anything besides a very small standardized design which most, my experience is a lot of people want to do the biggest thing they can do. And so here, if you're trying to fit the biggest thing you can do into any weird space backyard that you find yourself in, a standard solution is not going to work very well. 
where if you had a 300 square foot design, you probably could still get away with that, but that's not what everybody wants. In other places, in my experience down in the South Bay area, the houses just are naturally bigger yards because of the way that they were laid out years ago when they did that. And there is more flat space. There's definitely hills when you get to the perimeters of towns, but down in the basin where San Jose is built, there's not a lot of hills. And so I think that just from a construction standpoint, places with more homogeneous topography and site layout would lend themselves better to that. And also down there, the market, especially prefab and modular, you need a big market to make factory building houses to make sense. In that respect, you need a big market share before that can really get traction. Whereas I think standardized designs could come first because I could have four designs in my pocket that would work in most lots. It's a more affordable route for me to give you an option of, well, we can do a custom design, but we could also do like an unbuilt model home idea. It's not the most attractive thing to me as a custom home designer, but if I'm just putting on my market glasses and thinking, how could this work? I think that, you know, it'd be a more affordable way to get people into the market. That said, the design is usually the least expensive part of the equation anyway. I think as the markets grow, and in particular in places like California, where they had standardized housing development when the neighborhoods were built, that it might be a little easier to implement a plan or a, a design that would work in 60% of the properties or something like that. Can you give us a quick numeric cost range of what you would charge for an average client in Portland for custom detached new construction ADU without construction administration services, just for the design through the permit? It's different every time. It depends. I don't have standardized designs, but if somebody comes to me and says, I, I saw this design that you did before and I liked it and we want to use it, then obviously that cuts a big chunk out of the schematic design phase. If we can start with that and modify it to meet the needs, I would say it's anywhere in eight to $15,000. And then if you need to do a zoning adjustment, so a variance, or there's lots of neighborhoods where uh, historic review or historic resource is, is necessary, things add cost up above and beyond. We're going to transition into design best practices. So I cover ADU design best practices in my book in chapter five, for those of you who want to see my take on this question, but I want to hear from Willie, who actually does this day in, day out. I'm going to share a presentation, and Willie's going to walk us through quickly some of the ADU design best practices that he tries to incorporate. So these are pretty simple, access to natural light. I just think it's hugely important no matter what you're designing. And in particular, when you're designing small spaces, opening up the building, making it so that you can walk around without flipping light switches, and just the access to natural light also means access to views and connection to the outside is really important because it makes a small space feel bigger and feel, in my opinion, more comfortable. So these images, you can see a little backyard cabin with eight windows and two skylights. It's got a lot of light coming into it. And this is a, a great room in a two-story ADU that we did in Southeast Portland. And even though it's in a heavily wooded area, the lights aren't on and you can totally see what you're doing, feel a connection to the outside space, and it makes it feel like a really comfortable space. So access to natural light is probably number one. The smaller the space gets, the more important these ideas become. So creative storage, just storage in general with AUs, we're up against square footage you know, regulations wherever we are, and people frequently wanna get rid of the storage. I'm not an advocate of being super materialistic, but I will say that 
people have stuff and you need a place to put it for a place to be functional you really do need storage and then in an adu specifically these are like some just creative ideas of where you can find extra storage so not only closets but on the left we have um, drawers that are built into stair risers in the middle this is a niche space above the door and that's like so it's a vaulted area and then outside of that is a flat ceilinged little hallway and the little niche is just a would have been a void just in the a little attic space but we carved it out to make it storage and then on the right you have the classic harry potter door so those spaces are always important and um, fun and romantic little storage areas especially if you have kids around built-in storage under a built-in desk this is a studio adu that we did it's really really tight and so having storage Pretty much everywhere we could sneak it in was important in this one. Incidentally, this is a, how big is this ADU? 200 something. 240 square feet. 240. That's small. It's got a bed, it's got built-in storage, it's built like a little sailboat. So the long view is an idea that basically from opening up views through the space and out of the space so that this allows you to see through the space. So putting openings in the space in interesting places so that your eye can go all the way through the building and that makes the building feel bigger. And again, in a little space that just goes a long way of making it feel bigger than it really is. This, this project in particular, people never believe that it's 800 square feet. They're I want to pause on this one and say, you know, in this case we have what I'll classify as a catwalk. Maybe there's another word for it. Yeah, and yeah. in Portland, the code, you only count the habitable living space, so you would include that catwalk, but you wouldn't include this vacant space right here that doesn't have a floor. So in the Portland context within the planning zoning code, this might even be classified as a best practice because it expands that upper level so much and gives you so much architectural interest, but that might vary depending on how they classify square footage in your jurisdiction. Correct, yeah, and this is actually a trick I learned from the ADU that's in the background of Cole right there and in his house. Cole has a pretty sweet catwalk and a big open vaulted space. It's pretty great. So interesting interior spaces. This is another just giving vaulted spaces and sort of dynamic staircases, skylights, dormers, just things that make the space feel unique go a long way. Again, you can just imagine if this space was just a regular flat ceiling rectangular room, it would not feel as big and open as it does. And another one that I added was just flipping the plan. So this project and another project, this is this is an ADU where the bedroom is downstairs and then the common area is actually up on the second floor. And there's reasons pro and con for this, but what it does is where you will be hanging out with people and spending time gets tons of daylight. It feels like a tree house. You can see much further. Most of the time in backyards, if you're on, stuck on the ground floor, you're looking into the setback or you're looking 15 feet over to the back of the house. And if you get up 12 feet off the ground, you can actually see out into the neighborhood in a way that's a lot more interesting. I, I'll refer to that as a reverse floor plan. I don't know if that's the right yeah, term yeah. for it. Flip, flip flopping the floor plan. I'm going to do my next project like that. There's a lot of rational reasons to do it for the reasons you mentioned, a lot more natural light, but it also feels incredibly not normal. I'm not sure I'm going to really like living in it, but I want to try it out. You know what I mean? It's like you always want to walk into the great room and here all of a sudden you're walking into the bedroom, you have to go upstairs with your grocery. It seems kind of clunky. Yeah, that's the downside is that you walk into like a front hall and then it's a front hall with stairs and you have to always go up the stairs or just walk into a bedroom. So this is one that's not done that way. I really like 
using stairs in a dynamic way to accentuate people moving through the space. It's one of the only places in a building where you are moving in the Z axis, if you will. So calling that out and making it a fun thing. So this project is exactly what we were just talking about. It, the, the plan is flipped. So the upper right side of the second floor is the kitchen, living, dining. So that allows us to have the common area is up in the vaulted space, which makes it feel really neat. This project is built on an alley and it looks out over like a great big intersection. So if you're in the backyard, it's really very heavily planted and wooded and fenced. But once you're up on that second floor, you can actually see out and see over to a big intersection in the city it, 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 and gives some like nice dynamic stuff to look at and a connection to the bigger area. Again, we've got built-in storage in the bench by the window, sort of a real interesting vaulted ceiling that has a dormer in it. The long view, this one actually is built on the Willamette Bluff. So this looks out over the train switching yard and then out to the river and Forest Park on the other side. So when you combine a few of those ideas into, into the one space, it really starts to make the, the space punch above its uh, weight class, I guess. All right, so one core question I have for you is, if you're working with a homeowner, what information are you seeking from a homeowner to help inform the design for a detached AU? Usually I just say, what are your goals? A lot of times people that are ready to hire a designer have a pretty solid idea of what they want. And often just asking one question is enough to get 80% of the information that you're going to need. Is it going to be owner occupied or rented is a good one to start with. Although I find that even when people design them to be a rental, they usually design it around themselves mentally just because that first person design ideas is the way most people are going to do things. How big do they want it to be? Do they understand the zoning and sizing regulations? In Portland in particular, there's sort of two paths you can go. You can 800 square foot, there's still regulations and limits, but the do you want to do a big, almost house size ADU, or there's, you can do these 24 by 24 foot single story ADUs that you're allowed to build in the setbacks. How important is privacy? Because that sort of gets to some of those ideas with the flipping the plan. In general, these are often really, really close to the existing house and the neighbors and how you orient windows, where the views, even though the views and the daylighting is super important, you do need to be sensitive about where windows are looking. Are you looking straight into your next door neighbor's bathroom and things like that? So both how you feel about privacy and then how does the privacy impact the place that you're putting the building? Do you need extra storage? Getting rid of a shed or a garage and replacing it with an ADU. So do you need to accommodate that storage? Do you need a garage? Do you need just some external storage or are you going to be okay without it? That's sort of a topic. I've had people that have a full garage and they haven't thought about that. Do you have a particular style in mind? Because I can do lots of different styles. I'm pretty flexible and also the, the code. It, it limits you into a certain level of traditional design, but there's a lot of wiggle room within that now. Again, speaking about Portland in particular, do you want it to look just like your house? Do you want it to look like the craftsman across the street? Or do you want it to look kind of modern? What are, what are your interests? So, and budget. Yeah. That was a fun conversation. Thanks, Willie. I have a couple more questions, but I'm going to hold them because I want to see what audience questions there are. That wraps up the interview portion of this episode of the ADU Hour. As a reminder, these episodes are the edited audio version of interviews that we conducted via a webinar series. 
good news, you can access the full video series via Cole's website, buildinganadu.com. Now for the second half of the show, I curate questions from the audience that gives our guests the opportunity to dive deeper into a topic or address new ideas and questions. We've had some good ones. First, municipalities are hoping to address ADA and the accessibility of ADUs. So I'm wondering if you can address the costs and how those change when you are trying to accommodate the ADA requirements. It's not hugely more expensive to build that way. It's just, it takes more space in general is, is my experience. And so I guess in so far as space costs money, it can be more expensive, but in an ADU, the idea of the, the cost per square foot metrics don't really work anyways. I like the idea of giving some sort of square footage premium if you're going to build an accessible unit or maybe allowing a little bit bigger footprint because so in Portland you're allowed to do an 800 square foot ADU but most lots can only accommodate a 650 square foot footprint so it means to do a full 800 square foot ADU you have to do a two-story building and obviously that means you can't have an 800 square foot ADA unit on most normal lots so doing something to accommodate for the extra space on a single floor and maybe even allowing a little bit of extra square footage beyond the 800. I would think that those things are more important. It's a little bit more expensive to build a curbless shower because it's custom. You can't just buy a a fiberglass insert. And it's a little bit more expensive to build the cabinetry and the storage and the kitchen in a way that allows for accessible. So you can't have really high stuff above the counters. Some of the storage, you can't put stuff as high. And so therefore you need more space down low. I think allowing for more space would be a a good solution. Then you got to have good access. In a lot of ADUs, you're in a backyard and you have to go upstairs. So there are hurdles, I guess almost literal hurdles to, to getting into certain places. That can make it more expensive if you have to build an ADA ramp from the street all the way to the backyard. That could add some fee to the project. Building costs are really high right now. So do you have any design tips that can lower the prices and kind of address that cost? One story versus two story is a big one because building a second floor and all of the structure that it takes, that, that's a big additional cost. I would say uh, a big one is trusses. If you can come up with a design that you can do with trusses and you can still do vaulted ceilings with trusses, that's a little bit of a prefab solution. It's just a prefab roof in a custom build that can save a lot of money, both from a material standpoint and from the labor to put it together. You know, I, I like sort of wacky structural tricks where stuff's hanging off in a certain direction, but keeping the loads all coming through the walls, a nice neat rectangle with a triangle on top, that's gonna be less expensive and easier to build and less big engineered pieces to go into it, not putting windows right in the corners, simplifying the structural design. And then window and door packages are usually pretty expensive. And so using affordable windows and doors is a big one. Siding can be expensive. If you have to run a big trench because you're putting the unit really far away from the existing house or the existing sewer line. So some of that infrastructural stuff needs to be considered early so that you don't end up having to do weird plumbing gymnastics or building a sewage ejector pump. So making sure that you have that worked out at the beginning is important. And then simple finishes, and you can do simple finishes and still have really beautiful product. Keeping affordable material solutions on the table 
and not creating design that's predicated on material. So I, I try to design so whatever material, because often the stuff changes when the clients and contractors get involved and I don't really have a way to hold their feet to the fire about the material solutions. The affordable thing gets picked very often. And so trying to make designs that look good no matter kind of what the material you, you pick is, is a important thing. Yeah. Thank you. Can you give us an idea of design costs per Oregon and your California experience for a 650 square foot? I mean, yeah, it's, it's every project's different. So just painting design costs is always tricky. So design costs, it's gonna vary. Like, I mean, I'm sure any designers watching this right now are gonna say like, don't say it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then don't say it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, I won't say any specific numbers, but it's like, you know, I'm, I'm a one-man shop. My overhead's low. I'm able to keep things affordable for certain reasons. There's other company. And it's, that's not to say that you should use a one-man shop versus design firm. Design firms have a lot more resources that they can pull from than I do. And maybe they can get things done faster or meet higher quality control. Yeah. I've seen ranges apartment market from uh, like for detached construction from $1,250 to like $20,000. And I'd say the average that I see out there is eight to 12 for detached construction. But you know, I would imagine it's a little bit more expensive in California maybe, but we'll see. My experience in California was a little bit different because most of the work that I did was through a single design build company. So that was all for the whole project. So we didn't break out what the design fees work. I think Cole's range is pretty accurate. That low range is definitely if your little brother's doing the design for you and that high range, I mean, that could be totally normal. It just depends on how many bells and whistles you're looking for in your project. I have one more. What municipal regulations do you find to be the most prohibitive? Parking's pretty rough. Adding another car plus a house is really hard to any single family lot. Owner occupancy, it's just going to limit the amount of people that can do it. Obviously, landlords are going to want to build rental units. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But those are two big ones. Do you, do you run into any like exterior feature design regulations that you find prohibitive? Yeah. I mean, I think they're all prohibitive. Like, <laughs> I'd way rather have not have my hands tied. But they're not prohibitive in the respect. It doesn't stop you from getting projects done. So we're able to do really awesome, beautiful work even within the constraints of the subjective ADU design code that exists. Those constraints aren't as bad as like the real poison pill ones. I've got a couple. Willie, I guess I was curious, I've, you have done projects other than just detached construction, correct? You've done garage conversions and you've done basement conversions? Yep. Okay, from, purely from a design perspective and I want a subjective answer. Are you just as happy doing a garage or basement conversion or do you prefer detached construction? I prefer detached new construction because I like designing buildings, you know, a single building from the ground up. But I'm very happy to work on garages and basements and additions and anything else. I guess it's sort of egocentric, but I think a lot of architects would feel that way that it's, it's more fun to design a whole building. As a policy matter, I think you're right. I think architects probably prefer it and I think builders probably prefer it and that's why I encourage professionals to focus on the conversions because I think there's so much good work that can be done from a housing perspective. That's where we can bring costs down. At least in the Portland market, you know, LA, there's a lot of garage conversion specialists, but in the Portland market, there is not. And, and I think that's a, a great niche for more people to consider because a lot of 
builders don't want to work on conversions and designers don't want to work on conversions either. So, but thanks, thanks for your answer. Yeah. I, I would say that I'm very focused on conversion projects. I know a lot about how to do them. I've done a bunch of them. It's just, there's a lot more technical weeds that you get into with them. So it's more complicated and sometimes you don't get to stretch your design chops as much, but I totally agree that, that from a housing stock perspective, we really need to be doing it. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the ADU Hour. New episodes will be released weekly. The ADU Hour audio podcast series includes some of the interviews that were part of the live show. The unedited full-length version of all of the episodes is now available in video format for a one-time purchase price of $39 on buildinganadu.com. You can register for the ADU Hour series to gain immediate and indefinite access to all new and old shows. You can also find ADU courses for homeowners, real estate professionals, sign up for my email newsletter, which includes content and announcements, and pick up a copy of the book, Backdoor Revolution, while you're there. Go to buildinganadu.com to learn more.